All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to remind you each week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And you can go to subscribe to either of those letters at miningstocks.com. Now, it is almost the time to sign up for Chen's letter again. Chen accepts new subscribers only during the first 10 business days of each quarter. So starting April 1st, you can uh, subscribe to Chen's letter, assuming your name is on the waiting list and assuming he hasn't bumped up against the uh, the maximum number of subscribers he will accept. Uh, there is still some room for new subscribers, so I would suggest that you go to miningstocks.com, put your name on a waiting list, uh, on Chen's waiting list, if you're interested in subscribing to his letter. For those of you who are not familiar with Chen, he has had a remarkable track record in the past. He took $5,400 uh, of, uh, of a family... Ira and turn it into over $2 million in under uh, 10 years of time. So he is a very unique stock picker. He finds ways to make money in a host of different uh, different sectors. Uh, he is in the gold and silver space for sure, but he also most recently has made a lot of money in ethanol. He's done it in biotech and paper pulp stocks, financial markets, and a whole host of things. He finds ways to make money, which is um, very unique uh, ways to make money. Uh, he is an independent uh, thinker, and um, he is sharing his wisdom and uh, and ability to make money with his subscribers. So, Jay Taylor, uh, go to miningstocks.com, that is. Put your name on the waiting list if you're interested in signing up for Chen's letter, uh, and uh, miningstocks.com for my letter as well. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making uh, this show uh, the top show on the Voice America Business Channel. I also want to suggest uh, that you continue to send your questions and comments along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Uh, and also go to J. Taylor Media. As a matter of fact, immediately after this show today, I will be interviewing Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity at jtaylormedia.com. Well, in addition to thanking you for uh, listening to the show, I also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Nanostruct Technologies, Caden Resources, Canamex Resources, Brazil Resources, and Metanor Resources. Last week, uh, we had the former World Bank economist and best-selling author Richard Duncan on this show, and he made the point that you really need to keep your eyes on liquidity, whether it's expanding or contracting. And he put together a, a newsletter. Actually, it's a, a web-based newsletter called Mark uh, at uh, – well, the name of the letter is 
macrowatch.com. Listeners to this show can get a 50% discount. You do if you go to richardduncaneconomics.com, richardduncaneconomics.com, and you need to know the word time. That's the password, time, T-I-M-E, to get a 50% discount on his service. But what his service is doing is providing you with information as to whether the system is expanding or contracting. And that is, uh, if it's expanding, it's, it bodes well for equities. When it's contracting, not so well. And you want to take a more defensive strategy in that case, uh, perhaps get out of stocks entirely. So I think a very important service, and you might want to avail yourself to it. Well, regarding the issue of liquidity, I would like to mention the work of Charles Clow. He was an analyst with Merrill Lynch back in 1998 during the Asian crisis. I first became familiar with his work uh, when I saw him on CNBC one day and started tracking something he called the 52 week global U.S. dollar liquidity uh, measure, uh, and it's, uh, it, it's important because along the lines of what Richard Duncan was talking about, when the system was expanding, when global U.S. dollar liquidity was expanding, that was very bullish for stocks and other asset, uh, a- asset groups, uh, and so I watched it very carefully, but uh, the, uh, this uh, global U.S. dollar liquidity measure is comprised of two items. One is, uh, uh, one is the... Um, a Federal Reserve monetary base, and the other is U.S. dollars wage uh, deposited with foreign central banks. So the two together make up the global liquidity index. And what I found fascinating was uh, the uh, the percentage of foreign holdings in this global liquidity mix has been dropping very dramatically. It started with the Lehman Brothers decline for sure, and that is accounted for, of course, by the Fed pumping huge amounts of money into the system, but that immediately, like like a waterfall, uh, the amount of uh, foreign participation in this global U.S. dollar liquidity fell very dramatically. But more recently, it's been falling very precipitously, I think, in line with the crisis uh, in the Ukraine. Uh, to give you an idea, uh, before Lehman Brothers, 77% of the global U.S. dollar liquidity measure was from foreigners, and now it is only 44.7%. So this tells me that there are, the appetite for U.S. dollars among foreigners is really declining, uh, and I think this is something to watch very carefully as it might bode very well for gold and uh, possibly for inflation down the road. certainly means the Fed has to keep printing lots and lots of money to keep liquidity in the system. Which leads me uh, to our guest today and our show today. Last week, Morgan Stanley talked about uh, China facing its Minsky moment. Well, the Minsky moment is that point in time in which a, an economy can no longer take on more debt and it starts to run into reverse. You want to know what a Minsky moment is like? We faced one in the United States during the Lehman Brothers crisis uh, that really uh, wrecked havoc, of course, on the global economy. And so um, we are going to be uh, talking today at about... Uh, uh, 4.30, we're going to be talking to Alistair, or 3.30, excuse me, Alistair McLeod is going to be with us to talk about uh, China's Minsky moment and what that might mean for the price of gold. Also, uh, at 4 o'clock, as I mentioned, we're going to be talking to Daniel McAdams at jtaylormedia.com. would suggest you listen to that because Daniel will have a lot to say about the Ukrainian situation uh, and how that plays into the global uh, financial uh, system as well. Well, there's not a whole lot that 
you and I can do, I suppose, with respect to uh, geopolitics and global uh, global happenings and the global economy as far as that goes. Uh, so w- what we have to do is to try as best we can to fend for ourselves, to put food on our uh, on the tables for our family, uh, and that means getting getting real about what is real in the world of uh, investing. And of course, this letter is focused. This letter in the show, my newsletter in the show, is focused uh, to such a great extent on gold because of my views of the monetary system uh, and gold mining companies. And to help us today to sort of ferret out uh, some of these issues, um, the issue of uh, the slowdown in China and the problems there uh, and what it might mean for copper, base metals, and precious metals, uh, Eric Coffin is going to be joining me in just a couple of minutes after a first commercial break. Uh, we'll ask him uh, his views on on those topics and uh, uh, and then when we come back after Eric, of course, we'll be talking to Alistair McLeod. Well, we do have to take our break, and uh, but don't go away because we're going to be right back uh, with Eric Coffin. Attention mining investors. Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Amir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. As the bull market in gold resumes, gold shares will explode to much higher levels, and those companies that are ramping up production will take off first. Metanor Resources, symbol MTO in Canada and MEAOF in the U.S., is now in commercial production and producing over 4,500 ounces of gold per month from its bachelor mine in Quebec. With seven drills turning, I look for the company's gold resource to grow dramatically on both its bachelor and berry projects. I believe Metanor now offers major upside potential for savvy investors. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Canamex Resources has commenced a 10,000-meter drill program on its flagship Bruner Gold Project in Nevada. This follows a successful 2013 field season, which included a 58-meter intercept of 5.2 grams per ton gold. NYSE Market Listed Gold Resource Corporation just completed a $2 million strategic investment in Canamex. And NYSE Listed Hecla Mining Company also is a strategic investor. Canamex Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol CSQ and on the OTCQX under symbol CNMXF. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. That's questions. 
the number four, Taylor, at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me again a good friend of mine uh, and fellow newsletter writer, Eric Coffin. He is the editor of the HRA, that would stand for Hard Rock Analyst Family of Publications. And uh, I think rather than reading Eric's bio, because we've read it before and it's posted at the Voice America Business Channel, uh, I would just say, hello, Eric. It's good to have you with me. It's great to be back, Jay. Nice. Always good, good to talk to you. It's always good to talk to you as well uh, on the other side of the North American continent, uh, out there where all the mining activity goes on. Uh, you know, going back here a number of years, uh, you and I would go to these conferences and we would hear uh, one newsletter writer after another champion growth in China as the reason to own all manner of mining stocks, be it base metals or iron ore or uh, or, or precious metals. Now it seems as though China is slowing down and the copper has taken quite a hit recently. It's really down very, very sharply from its highs. Uh, and the story is that things are slowing down in China. What's your perception in China? I mean, we're, we're going to talk to Alistair McLeod a little later, and he's, he's talking about what Morgan Stanley's talking about, the, uh, the Minsky moment that China may be facing. What's your perception what are your thoughts on China? It's very difficult to get in there and know what's really going on, but what are your thoughts? Well, I think things are slowing down. I think, I think the, the guys that run the country, they recognize that it, it's time to take their economy to the next level, and that, that means increasing the service sector, probably increasing um, direct services to individuals in the economy and opening up their financial system. And it does look like they're, they are definitely making some serious moves now to start opening up their financial sector. That there is a lot of concern there that there are a lot of bad loans floating around China, and I'm sure there are. I mean, the, the provinces and the governments and some of the government-owned companies that are, that are really just, you know, really crappy entities have borrowed a lot of money. I mean, obviously, the way the power structure worked over there, they, they can probably strong-arm the banks, and they need to open it up so that things become a little more balanced. And part of that process, and it happens in any, you know, quote, capitalist, unquote, economy, Mm-hmm. Is there's going to be bankruptcies. The question is, how much is that going to freak people out over there when they see it? Because it's something you just didn't see before in the Chinese economy. But it, it is going to happen. So I think what we have to see is, how much is that going to spook the Chinese themselves when, when they see these companies start blowing up? Because some of them will. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, some, there's some thought, Eric, that uh, some of the demand for, China, uh, for some of these metals... Uh, I, I think copper being the primary one was as a as a collateral for some of the loans that were being borrowed. Have, have you heard anything along those lines? I, I, based on some of the trading that we've seen recently, where we saw these really rapid down spikes on volume, I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's what's going on. As you've seen, you know, entities over there, be they trading companies or miners or whatever, that are holding copper and iron ore, for that matter, as loan collateral, basically get their loan called. And the loan gets called, the collateral has to get sold. I've been a little bit uncomfortable about the. I mean, I'm not bear. I wouldn't say I'm bearish on copper, but I've been uncomfortable with the copper price and expecting it to pull back for a while. And the reason for that is, if you look at the London metal inventories, which is sort of the guide to what's out there, it's impressive how much they came down in the last few months. But mm. I, it seemed like too much for what was probably getting consumed. So I, I, I was. I've been assuming some of that's ended up in non-bonded warehouses. Mm-hmm. And indeed, it looks like some of that is probably sitting in unbonded warehouses over in China. So it's not getting counted by the London Metal Exchange, but it isn't really gone. It's just floating around in a warehouse, and some of it's been loan collateral 
and it's been collateral damage, if you will, when yeah. when those loans get called. So, I mean, I'm still, you know, I wouldn't say I'm bearish on copper. Copper production is increasing too, so I'm I'm not expecting the copper price to go higher. I wouldn't be that shocked if we see another ten percent haircut here. Really, wouldn't surprise mm-hmm. me at all. So we could see some more downside. Uh, it might, you know, the, the really successful investors are those who can take adversities and turn them into their favor. Um, and so do you think it might be time for people to take a contrarian view on copper? And if so, do you have any, I think there's one company you mentioned to me in the past that you think might be well yeah. positioned to, to um, you know, to weather the storm if it continues to uh, on for some time longer. I mean, I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be too brave about it. I mean, I'd be putting in, I would definitely be spink bits because I, I do think you, you have to recognize there is potential for a 20, 30 cent down day on the copper price. I mean, if that could happen. So I wouldn't be buying so much as bidding and I'd be bidding below. But one company I followed for years is called Nelson. They've got a copper mine in Eritrea and it's an extremely good operation. They're a very low cost producer. It trades at about, I think it's about three ninety a share right now. But one thing to keep in mind is this company's probably got two twenty a share in cash, mm. and they're a huge cash flow generator. This is a really, really nice mining operation. The other thing I like about Nelson is I won't bore you with the details, but the nature of their deposit is such that what will happen in about two years is it will shift from being predominantly a copper producer to being predominantly a zinc producer, also mm. a low cost producer. So I, I do think at some point we're going to see a move in the zinc price, and it's. It's a nice way to get ahead of that, but I'd only be bidding, not chasing, because I'm a little concerned. I am concerned about another, another whack in the copper price. But yeah, I, I believe I consider it a fairly safe stock. I mean, they're, they're, I think their cash cost is, I, I would imagine, it's probably under a buck. I mean, they make a lot of money. Yeah, that's that's a nice margin. Well, I, I think in talking to you recently, Eric, zinc was one of those metals you thought that you wanted to find a good producer of zinc. So. Am I right yeah, about that? It, it, yeah, and it does kind of dovetail into that because I do think zinc's one of the few metals that looks to me like it's going to be on the right side of the supply side. There's a couple of big mines going under in the next, they're, they're just running out of reserves here over the next 12 months, and they're, they're big zinc mines, and there aren't equally big zinc mines in the pipeline. So the, the zinc supply should start to really tighten up here as we get towards the end of this year. All right, uh, zinc, copper, all those things, but the real love of, of me, as you know, is is gold and precious metals, and one company that you and I both have followed, uh, I think you probably more closely than I, but it's certainly one on my list, and one I've liked a lot is GoldQuest down in the Dominican Republic. Seems to me, with this stock selling at 30 cents, Eric, could you just talk a little bit about what GoldQuest has for it? It has a resource. It's fairly sizable. Talk to us a little yeah, bit about could, that and, and what their plans are going forward this year. Well, in terms of gold, in terms of gold, they've got a 2.2, and it's about a 3.2 million ounce resource when you include the copper. The grades are good, and the geometry is very good. Uh, what I'm expecting to see next from these guys, sometime in April, they'll have their first, you know, the first real numbers crunched on this thing. It'll be their preliminary economic assessment, and I expect mm-hmm. that. I know the management of this company very well. I followed their last deal, which was a discovery they put in production in the Dominican and then sold. These guys know how to do this. I'm very comfortable they know how to optimize the project. I think the PA is actually going to be very strong. I think, I think the market's going to be very surprised how good the PA is because I expect this to be a very low cash cost gold producer after the copper credit, and it's going to produce a nice, clean copper concentrate, and there's all kinds of smelters. Whatever fears you may have about the copper price, there's a lot of smelters in the world that really need concentrate, and I, I think these guys will get some good offers. Plus, mm-hmm. it's a big property. Lots of exploration potential. The other thing that should come out in a couple of weeks is the results of a big airborne survey they just did. 
Um, I'm expecting that to generate a lot of targets, and, and the, the president told me a couple of days ago he's hoping to, to get at least one hole into eight or ten of those targets in the next few months, so there's, there's expiration upside. Mm. Uh, and in that belt, I mean, I'm going to mention one other company you know already, but I'm, I'm one of the founders of this company, so I'm not, I'm not objective when I talk about it. I'm just putting that out there for everybody. A company called Precipitate Gold, they've got the neighboring property to GoldQuest. Uh, they just kind of surprised everybody with a pleasant surprise this morning with some trench results. The trench in one direction was 32 meters of, I believe it was a gram and 18 grams silver. Other direction, 15 meters of 1.6 grams and 25 grams silver. Right now they're doing an IP survey, and IP was what, basically what worked for Gold Quest when they made their Romero discovery and a couple of other ones in that belt. Um, I'm very comfortable based on the geologic descriptions that they put out that these guys are, are in fact, going to generate a nice drill target at, on their property called Wanda Herrera, and I think that they'll be drilling. You know, I'm hoping to see those guys drilling within a couple of months, and I think we're in a market, even though it's still a little hesitant, I do think a new a new bull market in these type of stocks has started, and I think what people are going to gravitate to is guys that actually have the ability to get out there and generate results. I mean, it's fine that somebody's got a nice property, but if they aren't actually doing anything, who cares? So, yeah. I mean, I'm gravitating to companies that are actually working on stuff. Well, for sure, and uh, GoldQuest is, is right next door to Precipitate, and Precipitate, I looked uh, just before we came on the air, was selling in the U.S. terms at about 11.7 cents, so it's a, it's a stock. I think these are these kinds of stocks have great upside potential. Eric, un- unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, there's so many more we could talk about, and we'll have to have you back on uh, to talk about Absolutely. some of these names and give you more than 12 minutes the next time, but it's great, <laughs> it's great to have you with me for sure, and uh, thanks again. It's GoldQuest. What's the symbol, uh, Precipitate? symbol. Tell our listeners. Um, GoldQuest is GQC, Precipitate is PRG, and Nefsun is NSU. Yeah, and I and you uh, folks can all buy them down here, all those stocks uh, on uh, U.S. over-the-counter market as well, which I often do myself. So thank you very much, Eric, for being with us. It's really great to have you. Thanks for having me again, Jay. We'll talk to you again sometime soon. Well, folks, don't go away. Uh, I'm going to be right back after the commercial break with Alistair McLeod. He's going to talk about China's Minsky moment. Well, is it is China's Minsky moment uh, similar to the Lehman Brother moment that we experienced here? Let's hope not. But in any event, we'll hear what Alistair has to say about that and what it might mean for uh, gold and silver stocks as well as a lot of the other markets that we're all watching very carefully. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Alistair McLeod. Attention mining investors, Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. 
As the bull market in gold resumes, gold shares will explode to much higher levels, and those companies that are ramping up production will take off first. Metanor Resources, a symbol MTO in Canada and MEAOF in the U.S., is now in commercial production and producing over 4,500 ounces of gold per month from its bachelor mine in Quebec. With seven drills turning, I look for the company's gold resource to grow dramatically on both its bachelor and berry projects. I believe Metanor now offers major upside potential for savvy investors. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Canamex Resources has commenced a 10,000-meter drill program on its flagship Bruner Gold Project in Nevada. This follows a successful 2013 field season, which included a 58-meter intercept of 5.2 grams per ton gold. NYSE market-listed Gold Resource Corporation just completed a $2 million strategic investment in Canamex. And NYSE-listed Hecla Mining Company also is a strategic investor. Canamex Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol CSQ and on the OTCQX under symbol CNMXF. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again, Alistair McLeod. Alistair uh, runs the financeandeconomics.org website that's dedicated to sound money and demystifying finance and economics, and uh, his, he has a background as a stockbroker, a banker, and economist. He is a senior fellow at the Gold Money Foundation, and his weekly articles are written for gold money, are posted on his blog at alistairmcleod.blogspot.com. Welcome, Alistair. It's really good to have you back with me again. It's nice to be with you, Jay. You know, I want to talk to um, to our listeners today about China. You uh, recently wrote uh, a very interesting article uh, on China titled uh, The Bursting of China's Credit Bubble. And in that March 16th article, you noted some remarkable statistics regarding the ancient uh, Egyptian pyramids. Uh, but then you stated that what has been happening in China is a far more spectacular waste of resources even than the Egyptian pyramids. Can you uh, talk about that, make make some comparisons uh, with the, between the two, between what's going on in China and what took place long ago in Egypt? Yeah, certainly. Well, let's start with long ago in Egypt. Um, in those days, whatever was used as money was money. There wasn't such a thing as bank credit. The result was that if the pharaoh wanted to build a pyramid, he had to employ people, he had to pay for them, or he had to feed them or enslave them. Mm-hmm. or whatever. But the point was uh, not just that. It, he took people um, off the land where they were productive 
within the economy of, of Egypt at that time. And you're talking about taking a lot of men. I mean, it's a far smaller population in those days, but typically uh, the pharaoh would take something like 100,000 men, 20 years to build a pyramid. I mean, this is, this is enormous, enormous distortion on an economy when those mm-hmm. people could actually be, you know, back in the fields uh, producing food, um, you know, maybe making rudimentary tools and so on and so forth, maybe in, in inventing things which, to make life easier. So that was the situation then. You know, okay, we built the pyramid. What do you do with 100,000 men? You just send them back to, to uh, where they came from. Meanwhile, you know, there's, they've got to sort of find a role for themselves and mm-hmm. things have moved on and um, you've effectively got 100,000 men uh, who, you know, sort of have to reintegrate themselves. And it's, right. um, it's a nasty situation. Right. China done this in great style because uh, as well as using her own currency, uh, which of course the Egyptians didn't do. Um, uh, They were using real money. The Chinese can either print money or get the banks to print bank credit to make these mal investments. And China has been doing, I suppose over the last 20 years, roughly what uh, Cheops did um, in ancient Egypt. But on a far, far larger scale. I mean, they've taken China from really in European terms, I suppose, the Middle Ages almost, particularly after the impoverishment of communism, to um, a modern economy with new cities, new airports, new roads, new everything. In fact, so much new stuff that um, it's not being used. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners have uh, heard tell of, um, you know, almost complete cities, just empty, mm-hmm. certainly tower blocks of apartments, all empty, and uh, airports with um, no traffic and bridges that go nowhere. I mean, it is really the most extraordinary uh, production of infrastructure, way beyond anything that can be used. And the result is that, you know, if you do that, then if it's a city, if it's an airport or an apartment block, whatever it is, it's got to earn some money to pay the interest on the debt that was incurred in building it. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it's not earning any money because Mm -hmm. these places are empty. They, They are useless. They're surplus to all economic requirements. Mm-hmm. So the debt isn't basically being serviced. And uh, uh, the way you get around that one is you basically expand the debt. You know, if you can't pay the interest, then you borrow some more uh, in order to pay the interest yeah. and so on and so forth. And it just mounts up. And yeah. uh, that's roughly where China is. And of course, sooner or later, that game comes to a halt. And I think some of the larger broking firms are beginning to report just that fact. Yes, indeed. Um, in fact, uh, it was Morgan Stanley that just uh, raised the issue of whether or not we're at that Minsky moment, if China's at that Minsky moment. I know the Minsky moment, uh, named after the economist uh, Minsky, really talks about this sort of credit cycle where at first uh, loans can be repaid, the interest and the principal, and then you get to the point where only the interest can be repaid. At sooner or later, neither interest or principal can be repaid, and it's at that point in time in which the system then starts to go backwards instead of expanding credit, it starts to contract. And uh, I guess we had sort of a Minsky moment, would you say, Alistair, uh, with Lehman Brothers in the United States? Uh, uh, yes, absolutely. There was, if you like, another thing on top. I mean, the, the, the Minsky moment, I think, was really, uh, in that case, more about uh, the property, the residential property mm-hmm. market, which really was becoming so unstable 
uh, it had to collapse. And it took a lot of banks with it, including, of course, uh, uh, Lehman Brothers, who couldn't quite be rescued. But the result of that was the most enormous economic rescue package. I think that the Fed and the Treasury came up with something like $13 trillion. Yes. And we're talking five years ago, I and mean, $13 trillion. We were just sort of trying to grasp what a trillion dollars uh, mm-hmm. was. I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember. You remember the tales about, you know, if you took a stack of $100 bills, how high that stack would be. I think it was, um, it, it was something like 600 miles high. That's that's a hundred dollar bill. Hundred dollar bills. We're not new, talking twenties or tens. Yeah. No, I'm talking hundred dollars. New ones. You know, they come in those nice um, sort of with the slips around them. Right. If you stack those. Stack a trillion dollars um, in hundred dollar bills. New bills like that. Nothing crumply to mm-hmm. to make it rise a bit further. That is about six hundred miles high. And we were sort of trying to grasp this. I mean, this was only five years ago, but now we talk about trillions as if it was small change. Right. You know, it's, it's incredible. extraordinary, isn't it, James? It, 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 it really is. And do you suppose that uh, China is outdoing us, though, on a, on a GDP basis, perhaps? Is China well, growing credit more rapidly than the United States has since, oh, uh, since our Minsky moment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I think that, 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 that uh, what's happened uh, in, in, in the West, and by that I mean America and Europe, is that bank lending, by and large, has not grown. Mm -hmm. Uh, The growth has really come from the production of raw money by the central banks. Um, But in the case of China, I mean, they've just gone on gung-ho. I mean, the the, the banks have been expanding their balance sheets at an extraordinary rate. And now the the, the total uh, broad money supply, which is mainly uh, bank lending, uh, in China is over $25 trillion equivalent. I mean, in the United States, the figure is something like 12, 13, 13 trillion. It's half of China's. China's economy is second largest to the United States, but it's nowhere near as big as the United States. Yeah. Yeah. So you can see that, uh, you know, you've got this sort of mountain of credit, a lot of which has been uh, mal-invested, badly invested, invested for no return other than a speculative return, which may or may not come about. Uh, and so this is... Uh, um, the Minsky moment, if you like. Yeah, and I, I think Alistair can't point out too often what I think is ignored by the Keynesian economist, and that is the concept of malinvestment. You talked about the pyramids. What good did they do other than aggrandizement for the uh, for the pharaohs, I suppose? What good did they do other than perhaps um, you know centuries later provide some travel uh, curiosities for people? Good did it do? And then you had the factor of the labor being displaced, and then all of a sudden having to figure out what they were going to do after they were for building the uh, the pyramids, and in China, then you you also have the massive um, uh, uh, massive movement of labor from the country into Beijing and other major cities, I guess. And what happens now, Alistair, if, um, you know, these buildings, these empty cities, these airports are not drawing, you know, are not raising any revenues? It's, this, is the, this is the issue of malinvestment that the Austrians understand that the Keynesians don't understand. I just, it's, it seems so obvious and so simple. It's not rocket science, is it? And yet, no. it, and yet it goes on, and, and somebody is making money. I, I suppose that the people that are nearest the seat of power somehow are influencing this government expenditure to, to, to keep 
themselves uh, in Fat City. Well, yes, <laughs> I agree with you. I mean, it is obvious to us, I think, because people like you and I have taken the trouble to sort of sit down and think these things through. But if you're a government minister, and I don't care whether you're a, you know, it's in China or whether it's in the West, you're not actually interested in this. You're interested in votes. You're interested in promoting the particular interests that you were elected to do or you believe that you were elected to, to, to promote. Uh, and uh, the Chinese are no different. I mean, there will be large construction companies, you know, who, who um, have enormously good connections into, into government and they exploit those connections. And so, uh, you know, and, and the government owns the banks. So you don't have a, a banking risk, in effect, which is, which is um, basically means that they can continue to do this to a far greater extent than perhaps we could in the West, because you don't have um, bank directors turning around and saying uh, that they're unhappy with um, the extension of the balance sheet given the equity base, you know, which would be a sensible thing to do. Mm -hmm. But when the bank is owned by a government, I mean, who cares? You know, there's, there's more money. If you want, want to put more money into the balance sheet, the government will, will, um, will provide. So, um, you, you know, China has just gone further and further and further than anyone else in history. But the, the thing that brings down this malinvestment is usually the same, and it's usually property. And I go back to uh, Japan in the early 1990s. I think in 1989, I remember a statistic that the uh, ground in which the imperial palace in Japan stood was worth more than the whole of California. Mm. And this is, you know, this is, this is um, a property um, uh, bubble about to collapse. And that indeed is what happened. I think we saw, we saw exactly that in the United States in 2006 and two, through to 2008. And uh, we're now seeing it in China. And, uh, but again, central banks always believe they can manage the process. And of course, this is what's happened. The, the, the Chinese authorities think that they can now control this debt bubble they can rein it in gradually without there being any consequences. But what they don't understand, and no politician understands until it really hits them, is if you start withdrawing the supply of easy money from a bubble like this, then people start going bust. And when people start going bust, the whole of the confidence situation changes. And that was the thing that we saw particularly with the Lehman Brothers collapse, because up until that moment, the banks were happy to lend. You walk in, you say, I want to borrow a million bucks. They say, certainly, sir, sign here. <laughs> You know, there was no further question. Yeah. After after that, after the, the, the Lehman crisis, it was very different. You go into a bank with all the good collateral and you want to borrow, borrow a few million bucks. And um, they say, well, it's very kind of you to ask us, but I'm afraid we cannot accommodate you at this time. They weren't prepared to look at anything. And this is this sort of change in attitude. It can be very, very sharp when it happens. And that is something that is completely beyond central bank's control. Yeah, and I, and I think it gets back again to this notion of malinvestment, their lack of understanding that when they build these airports for which there is little demand or the uh, housing for which there is not any natural, organic, uh, spontaneous economic demand, they don't understand. It's so logical. It seems so logical, but they don't understand it. So I imagine if there's Keynesians listening to this conversation, I can't imagine there are too many. They would have turned us off a, a while ago. I wish, but, I wish they would. I wish they'd learned something. <laughs> <laughs> well, if they're listening, you know, I know that they're going to say, well, you just 
what you said the bankers think they can do. The central bankers think they can just print more money and, and bail everything out. Well, uh, as you say, clearly at some point in time, it, it becomes uh, impossible for them to do that. You know, Alistair, one of the things that uh, we've seen uh, with this big boom in, um, in uh, all this infrastructure creation in China over the last uh, decade or so was a big boom in the mining company profits from Australia and Canada and elsewhere. A lot of, uh, you know, metals prices have gone up, very, had gone up very dramatically. You know, of course, as uh, middle class has emerged to a certain extent in China, you've seen demand for automobiles and, uh, and energy. And so oil prices, uh, energy prices have been pretty strong. What's going to happen? Do you think this could have a, a contagion effect perhaps on the global economy uh, when China finally gets their Minsky moment, which is, is really the unraveling of this credit expansion. Do you think we could have a contagion effect globally uh, on the global economy? There's bound to be a, a, an effect, yes. Quite how it transpires, we will wait and see. I mean, the lesson from the Depression in the 1930s was that the Depression, I mean, people said that the Depression was exported from America into other countries, and it certainly was in terms of things like agricultural prices. I mean, my uh, mother's father had a farm in Kenya and we were growing cotton and sisal and what else we were growing pyrethrum and mm-hmm. maize and barley and things like that and the 30s was a very rough time for farmers um, mm-hmm. and it it, it, it it came about really as a result of the depression and if you like the also the um, tendency to to uh, uh, restrict trade there are lots of trade restrictions which meant that markets for a lot of um, agricultural product from all around the, the world were disrupted you couldn't you know if you were farming in Kenya, which was in, in, in my grandfather's case, you couldn't really export to America. I mean, mm-hmm. America was out of the equation. Mm-hmm. So there are various ways in which in which um, a problem, let us say, uh, in China could well be exported into the rest of the world. But um, there's no reason why this should be a huge problem, because China can continue to manufacture whatever it is we want. Now, if China has problems, and it faces up to those own, its own problems domestically, there is no reason why it can't continue to manufacture, to supply whatever it is we want from China. Mm-hmm. And so the point I'm trying to make is that there's quite a lot of variability over um, you know, whether China having a problem becomes a problem uh, for the rest of us mm-hmm. or not. The very, very best case is, yes, there will be some sort of statistical impact, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, if we were running our affairs sensibly and there was some stability in our economies, we would probably benefit from China's problems. Because apart from anything else, it, it would be quite likely that there would be a loss of confidence in her currency and her currency would weaken, which would mean that the things that we buy from China might be a bit cheaper. So, you know, there, there, there are two sides of this, um, of this argument. Mm-hmm. The problem, I think, um, which is likely to arise is a financial one, and the financial contagion could well be the undoing of everybody else. And uh, I'd just like to point out that uh, Janet Yellen had her first FOMC meeting uh, this week, mm-hmm. and out of that seems to have come a slightly mixed message, but I think on balance a more cautious one, in the sense that uh, I think the Fed is beginning to understand that printing money is not the solution to everything. And they are, I think, becoming worried that um, by continuing on the QE route, that um, they're going to become uh, overextended and they're not necessarily going to be con- able to control anything. On another s- aspect of this, I think that if the central bank readily prints money, it removes any discipline from government in its budget 
military control. So I, I note that, and I note it's happening at the same time as China. And even in the Bank of England, we've had a reshuffle in the Bank of England. And when I sort of sit down and analyze who's gone where and what and all the rest of it, I come up with one conclusion, and that is that the Bank of England is going to, I think, very likely pursue a, a, a more cautious monetary stance on balance. Mm-hmm. So so this, this is interesting because we have got China, we have got America. I mean, Japan, Japan are basically so horribly bust. <laughs> You know, they're, they're in their ultimate printing phase. But you've also got the Bank of England. And I just see this commonality that the central bankers uh, have realized that printing money does not rescue the economy because otherwise it would have happened by now, five years on from the Lehman-Minsky moment. Mm-hmm. And as a result, um, I, I just see that there's a sort of, there's a swing towards a deflationary feel, if you like, mm-hmm. in the whole situation, which, of course, ultimately will have to be rescued by accelerating printing your money again but this uh, you know that's probably the day after tomorrow rather than tomorrow so do you think that what we might see here is a continual sort of more cautious or tightening uh, attitude on the part of various central banks and and then it's going to throw things into a potentially into a downward spiral or they'll try to catch it before that and we get uh, the accelerator being hit again and and more monetary uh, easing well it's I, I certainly see what you have, have described as coming about, and um, we're seeing already that the central bankers are backing off from this easy money policy and don't worry until inflation picks up sort of thing. I think that uh, the effect of it will be to slow down economic growth, slow down the rate at which money goes into the economy, which is really all economic growth, a currency number, as it were. And, and when that starts uh, biting, I think, I think that, again, we, you're going to have the same problem uh, rising in America and elsewhere that they have in China. And that is the people who are overextended and have been relying on easy money to pay the next load of interest are going to find that that is difficult. And some of these guys are going to start going bust. And so we all have our Minsky moment. Yeah. Um, and then the question is, what does the Fed do? What does the Bank of England do? Uh, what does the ECB do? Well, the answer, I think, is they come back to this one thing. We must keep the show on the road. Mm-hmm. And that means that we have got to provide the money and the credit for that to happen. Mm-hmm. So they will, they will ramp up the printing presses again. Yes, they will, but that uh, there is growing, uh, potentially at some time, uh, people will start to realize that this is not working. I think more and more people are realizing that there's less bang for the buck. Certainly, the uh, money that's being created in the U.S. Uh, by the Fed is not getting into the economy. The economy remains lackluster, probably worse than the government claims it is. Uh, and yet, you know, Alistair, as, I, as we said earlier, somebody gains from these games, from this money printing. As you point out in your uh, March 16th article, there are a lot of very filthy rich Chinese that have come out of this whole boondoggle, this uh, capital expenditure for infrastructure and all that. You, I think you mentioned something like uh, the, the really filthy rich people in China have something like $3 trillion to protect against a declining renminbi. First of all, let me ask you, uh, explain to me how you think this whole scenario would cause a weaker renminbi. In my view, it seems like if you have a, an economy that's imploding, it would, it would increase the value of the renminbi. Its purchasing power would increase, but are 
are you suggesting that's not the case because they'll try to outrun the deflation with even more money printing? Uh, I think if you're looking at the renminbi, um, you're looking at it against other currencies, uh-huh. or you're looking at, at it against gold. Okay. If we consider if we consider other currencies, uh, that uh, in the short term is probably as much as anything uh, a function of central bank policy. Mm-hmm. If the Chinese want to see a weak renminbi, then they will let it uh, weaken. They do have a reasonably strong uh, trade surplus, so the tendency actually is for the currency to to strengthen uh, in terms of the balance of trade. Um, But I think that it is weakening now because there is some hot money which is tending to come out of China. Now, whether that hot money is Chinese-owned or foreign-owned, uh-huh. uh, you know, like by us, yeah. uh, in, in, you know, in Europe and America, uh, is, 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 is immaterial. It is a source of selling. So it's, it's hot money coming out and I think putting the currency under pressure. I think in the short run, the, um, the authorities in China are not worried about this. They probably take the view that a lower currency would help stabilize the economy anyway. Mm-hmm. So, so I don't think that they're unhappy about it. Mm-hmm. If it develops into a full-scale uh, route, then that is a different situation. But I, can, I think I can say something about that in a moment. In the, in the case of gold, what happens, I think, becomes a function of uh, people's responses. If they feel that the currency is going down, uh, then on the, they will look at gold in terms of renminbi, and they'll think, well, do I buy gold before it gets more expensive in my currency terms? Mm-hmm. And the answer mm-hmm. probably is yes. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but uh, if you bear in mind that the Chinese, in common with all Asians, um, uh, have this view that uh, gold is the best form of money you can possibly have as a store of value, then uh, a sliding currency is likely to increase the uh, pace at which the rich Chinese buy their gold. I mean, they're they're bound to try and protect themselves as much as possible, particularly when they see their other investments, such as properties and all the rest of it, go down the swanee because, um, uh, you know, because <laughs> the Minsky moment has happened. So I can, I can, I, I think there is a difference between currency and gold. I just, just wanted to make that point. Okay, so we're we're hearing all these reports about tremendous amounts of gold going from the West to China. I think you've talked about it on our show in the past, and yet we're not seeing anything happen to the official price of gold that we get quoted here uh, on the forward markets, on the futures markets, on the COMEX, and on the uh, on the London market. When do you think we might start to see? this enormous demand for gold start to play out in terms of a higher price? I think the answer to that one, Jay, is and let's, let's assume the demand continues uh, when the Western central banks run out of liquidity. They have been feeding the liquidity into the market. I'm talking about the physical liquidity. Mm-hmm. And there are signs, really, through the second half of 2013, uh, that that uh, process is likely to come to an end. Um, I would cite a number of things as, uh, various central banks have been uh, have come under pressure to report where they hold their gold, and in one case, the Finnish uh, uh, central bank actually said that approximately half her gold is out on lease, um, which is in co- which is a common practice with all central banks. Mm-hmm. Now that's interesting because half her, her gold basically is all she has in London. So uh, we're not talking a huge amount of gold, but. Um, the important point is that the, the, the Central Bank of Finland is saying that she is doing what all the other central banks are doing. So you can see that it's leased. And when gold is 
least, it is sold into the market to be returned at a later date. But meanwhile, it's been sold into the market, and that's gone to China, it's gone to India, it's gone to Turkey, wherever. So it's that liquidity, when that liquidity dries up, and I think that has now happened, then the gold price starts moving higher. You've then got a second effect, and that is that the central banks who have leased their gold begin to think, well, you know, people like McLeod at Gold Money have been banging on about this stuff, uh, all our gold going to the Far East, and uh, it looks like at this sort of price that the mines aren't really going to come up with very much more gold. Are we ever going to get our gold back? Is this a sensible policy for us to pursue? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Perhaps we ought to have a word with the Bank of England and see if we can get some of our gold back. Yeah. Uh, I think that's beginning to happen. And they will have also seen the German experience where, uh, you know, Germany uh, only ended up getting five tons back from the United States. Right. Now, I mean, whether you like it or not, um, you know, the fact of the matter is they should have got more than that. There is something deeply suspicious about this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and because of all the secrecy surrounding this, nobody will talk. Of course, it just fuels market rumors. But, you know, I'm, I'm trying to sort of stand back from the rumors, and I can only come up with one conclusion, and that is that America does not have the ready gold to deliver back to Germany. I mean, if I was America, uh, if I was the New York Fed, I think I would at least come up with a bit more than five, five tons, because that's laughable. Um, the fact that they can only come up with five tons very, very strongly suggests that they just don't have it. Yeah. Now, that's very, very worrying. So um, that's, you know, I think that 2013 was a turning point. Now, gold bottomed at 1180. And if you remember back on December the 31st, all the major brokers came up with a negative forecast for the gold price in mm -hmm. 2014. <laughs> now, one bank in particular, Goldman Sachs, called it a slam dunk sale. Uh -huh. now, since then, we've risen from 1180. We peaked last Friday at about 1390 before we had a, a very, very quick correction. And there are a number of things driving this correction. But even then, the correction from that bottom is uh, a little bit over 30%, about a third, I suppose, which is, you know, a sort of a fairly reasonable correction. I mean, it's, it's the mm -hmm. sort of correction you would expect in a bull market. Right. So uh, I think the point I'd really like to make is that it, it, it feels to me as if gold has turned the corner. The mm -hmm. people who were very, very bearish in, in December are now completely wrong-footed. The majority of the bears have been squeezed out, and we do actually rely on new buyers coming in from the West. And I think that that gradually is beginning to happen. Mm -hmm. Now, I was very interested this week to see there's a story, which I'm sure that you'll have noticed as well, Jay, that the Chinese have been using copper as a means of, right. um, uh, you collateral. know, just use it as collateral mm -hmm. in order to borrow money. And uh, the story goes that uh, you do this with an offshore bank and an onshore bank and a letter of credit. And uh, what you then do is you sell the copper forward to cover the price risk in the London market. Mm -hmm. Now, that's fine. But what you then do is you go around, you do the same thing all over again. And again and again and again, you can do this 20 or 30 times. Yeah. So now... Uh, again, Goldman Sachs arguing that, you know, this this situation means that there is a lot of copper which has got to be sold uh, and will come on the market. Mm -hmm. But if you actually look at the stock levels uh, compared with uh, global demand, I mean, it's complete nonsense. They were even turning around and saying that foreign speculators were doing this. Now, I wouldn't say that there are no foreign speculators doing this 
but I hardly think this is a major uh, influence in the market. Mm -hmm. So the conclusion I would come to is that you've still got these vested interests trying to talk commodities down and metals mm -hmm. in this case. Mm -hmm. Because, again, they sort of say that it's not just, just copper, it's iron. And they also mention gold. Mm -hmm. Really? Now, I can't say that nobody's doing this with gold. In fact, I'd be very surprised if, if, if there isn't someone doing this with gold, mm -hmm. copper, with, I don't know, jade ornaments for all I know. But to assume that this is a big market feature, I think, is actually trying to push a vested interest arc. And um, I'm not saying that, um, that this is a sort of, you know, a... a a, a, an appalling crime or anything. It is a fact of the way the market works. Mm -hmm. People do push their vested interests the whole sure. time. Sure. And that's what we're seeing today. Yeah. Um, and so, well, it, you know, gold is a wall of worry. And that's always the case with any bull market in its early stages. You don't buy it because you're worried about all the negative stories that are going around about it. Oh, about for it. sure, for sure. Uh, and then, of course, at, at some moment you get at the other end of the spectrum and, and it gets overpriced, but I don't know how we're going to know that because uh, it's a world that's changing so rapidly with, with currency. If we do not, if we measure it in dollars, what is a dollar? You know, it's a, a barrel of oil is a barrel of oil, an ounce of gold is an ounce of gold, but what is a dollar? So it's uh, that's what makes it a little difficult. Well, Alistair, we're just about out of time, but how? just in summing up here, We've got we've got a heck of a problem in China, no doubt about it. I, I guess my biggest question for you and what I don't quite understand yet is what is going to cause people not to accept, say, the COMEX's solution when they run out of gold to just simply give you dollars? Why won't people just accept dollars if uh, if those exchanges don't have the gold and when it's demanded? The theory is you can just take, take your dollars and go out and buy gold off the market, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. So the, what the will way... trigger what what will trigger this loss of confidence? It's going to get people stop being complacent about, oh, so what? I didn't get my gold. I can go buy it on the market. What's going to cause this change of psychology that's going to cause people to demand their gold that's going to send gold to its real honest equilibrium price? Well, the answer basically is that the, you, 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 know, the, you have to go out and you actually have to buy the physical. Yeah. And you have to be very, very sure that the physical has been bought. I mean, the idea that you go to a European bank and open an unallocated account, you, I mean, there, there's no way it has been bought. Basically, all that happens is that you have parted with a sum of money. The bank has taken your money and they've credited your account with, with an amount of gold. But that gold doesn't necessarily exist except right. uh, as, as, as a counterparty risk that you have with that bank. Mm -hmm. And if the bank goes belly up, you don't have the gold. Right. So, uh, uh, you know, people actually have to get real about buying their gold. Mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of semi-real when you, when you um, uh, buy one of the physically backed ETFs. When I say semi-real, I say semi-real because there is a layer of paper between you and the gold, right. which, which may or may not, um, uh, uh, you know, be, be, be valid. Mm -hmm. um, but we, uh, this is an interesting one because uh, one of the things that drove down the price allegedly in 2013 was the liquidation of these ETFs and particularly the real granddaddy of them all, uh, GLD. That has now generally stopped and I think I'm right in saying that the signs that that is beginning to turn round mm -hmm. and, um, you know, members of the public are beginning to add a little bit to their positions. Mm -hmm. um, very, very cautiously, which you would expect at this stage of the market right. because after all, we, we, in the West, we are trend followers rather than yeah. deep thinkers. So, but that's that you know that source of gold has effectively dried up, and if the Europeans and the American central banks have also dried up, 
where is it going to come from? You've yeah. got mine supply and scrap supply. And at this level, there's not a lot of scrap around. And I think that uh, mine supply uh, seems to be hovering around about the 2,800 tons. And that's pretty well spoken for. And, yeah. uh, you know, with, with prices round about here, I don't see that level of production lasting very long. So the yeah. dynamics in the market are that you've got lots of people who have promised gold who haven't got it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know when, Jay, but sooner or later, there's going to be a, um, a moment of reckoning. The yeah. gold market is going to have a Minsky moment. You're exactly right. I was going to say, yes. at that moment when people are saying, I'm not going to take dollars anymore, I've got to have the real thing, send it to me now, or I'm going to raise some hell. I suppose that's when uh, that's when we start to see the real price of gold rise. And I would think psychologically also, uh, if the Federal Reserve and other banks start to print money like mad because they're afraid of their next Minsky moment, we might also see a, a revival of, uh, of demand for gold. Well, we're really out of time, Alistair. I want to thank Thank you very much for your insights. Always a pleasure to have you on. Always great insights. Look forward to doing it again sometime in the near future. Thank you very much. I look forward to it as well. Thank you very much, Jay. Well, that is, in fact, all the time we have for this week. Next week, my guest will be foreign currency and gold expert Axel Merck and junior mine exploration expert and newsletter writer John Kaiser, who will be with me to talk about some of his favorite stock picks and also to talk about how he is making money for his clients in this particular market. I want to thank Tacey Trump, my producer, and Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. And thanks to each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Canamex Resources has commenced a 10,000-meter drill program on its flagship Bruner Gold Project in Nevada. This follows a successful 2013 field season, which included a 58-meter intercept of 5.2 grams per ton gold. NYSE market-listed Gold Resource Corporation just completed a $2 million strategic investment in Canamex. And NYSE-listed Hecla Mining Company also is a strategic investor. Canamex Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol CSQ and on the OTCQX under symbol CNMXF.